It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing in our study today of uh, a book called Homecoming, um, which came out last year. Are authored by yours truly, uh, the byline under which the title says Homecoming, but the byline is How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And um, where we left off last week was um, basically trying to explain that when Messiah Jesus declared in uh, Matthew 5.17 that he didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. He actually came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. And the context in which um, we were talking was that uh, an earlier chapter in this book was entitled The Requirements of Journeys. Why why does God, um, why didn't God just bring the Jews uh, after Passover straight out of Egypt, the culture of Egypt, the tyranny of Pharaoh. Why didn't he just take them right through without the Red Sea and uh, no need to come up on the other side to to learn what happened when Pharaoh tried to to bring them back? Um, Why didn't he just bring them straight away, straight on to um, to the promised land? Why was this um, requirement of the miracle of the Red Sea and then the realization that they're still alive on the other side and then the whole thing about um, Mount Sinai? I mean, we do have Pentecost coming up. I think it's the 28th of this month of May. Uh, The Jews call it Shavuot. It's the fourth of seven Levitical feasts out of uh, chapter 23 of Leviticus. And, um, but it's symbolic, um, these numbers of the number of Levitical feasts, the numbers of the f- number of furnishings inside the uh, tabernacle of Moses. Why seven? Why seven Levitical feasts? Why seven steps uh, of, of the journey between leaving Egypt and arriving and conquering the uh, promised land? Why seven days of creation? Anyway, this is all those questions are something what we call the study of typology or symbolism that everything that was done with the Jews was a portrayal, if you will. It was a, it was a picture. It was a shadow of things to come. And so where we are in this journey uh, with requirements of journeys, um, we realize as Messianic believers, as as uh, Christians, as Gentile Christians, that this whole experience of Passover is not so that we can just stop there and say, "Okay, one and done." Um, we uh, we were part of that 
uh, sacrificial lamb, and we spread the blood of that lamb on our do- doorpost. And we've just decided, uh, based on our Gentile theology, of that the reason Jesus came was so that when we die, we get to go to heaven. We just stay in Egypt. And by the way, um, again, I've said this on other broadcast, other shows on this broadcast. Um, I haven't found a single verse in the Bible that says the reason or the purpose for Jesus coming to earth was so that when we die, we get to go to heaven. It's not there. It's way different. I mean, radically, radically different than what we were taught, whether we were Catholics, whether we were Protestants, it doesn't matter. Um, And what we're learning now in this journey uh, is that we lost our father in Genesis chapter 3. We lost our relationship with our, with our dad, uh, with our Abba, as the Jews call him, with our Av, A-V. That's the Hebrew word for father. We lost that relationship um, with the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And the reason that Jesus is called Yeshua, in his, that's his um, Jewish name, was sent by the father was to do an act of restoration, to restore something that we had earlier. Well, what did we have earlier in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? We had a relationship with our Father, which he gave us authority to have dominion over the earth in the material creation. And unfortunately, that one um, belief in Satan's suggestions about uh, the character and the nature of the Father, our Father, caused us to doubt. It caused us to have second thoughts about what are the motivations of the Father? What's he really after? Maybe, why is he putting these restrictions on us about not eating this fruit from the tree? Um, And so uh, the enemy was, I would, through implication and through inference to say, well, maybe he's afraid of you. Maybe he's fearful that you'll be like him. Um, maybe he's uh, jealous uh, or envious or fearful or all the other tactics that the enemy uses to separate us from a deep relationship with God, a a relationship of trust, a relationship of dependence, a relationship of faith. And and we've talked about uh, the definition of eternal life uh, being a relationship with God, not going and living in in a uh, celestial uh, mansion. That's not what eternal life is according to the Scripture, not even close. So um, I would refer you to John seventeen three, uh, which says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So that's relational. That's not, a, that's not relocational. And we really have to shift gears and get back to the original um, message of the scriptures. Um, we've talked in the past about all this uh, invasion of influence of Gnosticism and, and the Greek uh, philosophical worldview when the, when the Jewish gospel of the, of the New Testament, because most of the new believers in the beginning in the book of Acts were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles, with maybe the exception of Luke, were Jewish. The 70 disciples were Jewish. The, it was a continuation of the story of God's plan to restore relationship, 
a ruptured relationship because of sin, because of mistrust uh, in Genesis 3, the reason he sent his son is so that we could be back in the loving arms of not just our older brother, Jesus, but also our father, Av, Abba, the one true God, the creator, Father. And so I'm, I'm saying all that to give us a little bit of context where we are in this book of Homecoming. And um, in this chapter called The Requirements of Journeys, it leads us to the conclusion that um, on these journeys— um, we get put into school. Well, why is that necessary? What are you talking about, school? Well, the Jews didn't go to the promised land right away. They had to go to this uh, place called the Sinai Desert where, where they couldn't be independent of God, where they could not say, well, um, I'll call on God only in an emergency or when there's a 911 situation or something that's um, at urgent. But no, I mean, daily they had to trust that the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, where it moved from day to day, from moment to moment, was going to, dep- was going to be the key to them living the next day because if they didn't follow the cloud and they didn't follow the pillar of fire um, – that's not where the manna fell on the, on the next part of the journey. So it was critical to matriculate or to sign up for this school of getting to know God again. And we talked about this last week. Why was that necessary? Because they had been in Egypt under a, a demonic pagan culture, under a tyrant called Pharaoh, which we said was representational of, of Satan. And they were slaves, They were enslaved to the system. And so God says, that's not what I want for my children. But you've been away uh, from me for so long. We have to get reacquainted. We have to get to know each other. So all of these stories about and, and, and lessons of journeys are to not go to go to a place, although a place was included. In this case, it was the promised land. But that wasn't the main motive for the journey because the promised land was an inheritance to be given by a father to his children. So the point of the journeys was all to restore our knowledge, personal knowledge. What I'm talking about is not head knowledge, what facts, knowing facts about God. No, I'm talking about relational heart knowledge where you say, I'm a member of a very special group. It's called the family of God. And as such, I am a child of the most high God. And there's a relationship that is so deep and growing and maturing and developing. And that relationship, by definition, is, according to John 17, 3, eternal life. I mean, again, I sound sometimes repetitious on these reviews on the show, but we've had it so ingrained into us that um, people say, oh, yeah, I have a relationship with God. That's, that's important, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the fallback position is, yeah, but I've got my ticket and I'm going to heaven. Okay. Well, the problem is 
um, the Jews who didn't want the purpose of their journey when they left Egypt and they're going across the side, they didn't want a relationship with God. Um, and they complained and they murmured and they uh, basically said, let us go back to Egypt. And, you know, all of the, all of the whining and complaining, they really, their motivations were revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God says, hey, I'm going to bring you out to this place. I want to know whether you want to have a relationship with me as much as I want a relationship as your father with you, my children. Do you want it as badly as I do? And we'll find out. And that was the requirement. That was the purpose of the journey. And we as Gentile Christians, we look at this and say, well, we don't have to go on a journey because it's all about um, Passover. It's all about what Jesus did on the cross. And boom, one and done. It's over. And we stop at Passover without appreciating that what happened at Passover, when they spread the blood of the, of the perfect, unblemished lamb on their doorpost, that was the beginning of something, not the end. Because what good does it do for God to spare us judgment of, of our, the sin in our life, which is basically living in Egypt, becoming part of Egypt, uh, belonging to Egypt, um, without extricating us, without getting us out of there. Because that remaining in Egypt is a decision, a choice, where we say, I'd rather stay enslaved to the power of Pharaoh, which is, again, a representation of, of Satan. Uh, when, a Christian, when a new Christian says, I'd rather stay in my sin, I don't want to have to give up my sin. I, wanna, I want a ticket to heaven, and I want to stay in Egypt. And when you get right down to it, when we ask people, when you made a commitment to ask for forgiveness of sins and you repented, repenting means to change the way we think about something, okay? It's a, it's a repentance is to change the direction, change the way we think about, um, about a certain event, experience, belief, and after we repented and supposedly we invited Jesus, Yeshua, into our heart, into us as our, listen, Lord and Savior. Well, we oftentimes will accept him as our Savior to say, yeah, thank you. I'll take that, I'll take that forgiveness because you died as an atonement, as an expiation for my sins. I deserve that hit. You took the hit instead. But th- what about this Lord stuff? You know, I think it was uh, John chapter, no, it was, oh, I'm thinking Luke 6, John 6. I'll, I'll look it up during the break, um, where Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you do not do what I say? In other words, what type of relationship is that? God the Father sends his Son to be the bridge of blood. I call that, this is the obedient decision of Jesus in the garden to say, even if it kills me, Father, I'm going to do your will. That's the moment when Satan's authority over mankind was broken. And we have to, at some point in our journey, 
back to the father have to make that same type of decision. And uh, unfortunately, I know a lot of, co- of people that call themselves believers who have really not left Egypt to begin the journey, to get to know God, to get to trust God, to depend on God, to say, no, um, I am not, uh, I do not belong to myself any longer. Paul tells us that in, in Corinthians. Don't you know that you've been bought with a price? You are no longer your own. Do Christians understand that when they make this confession of faith? Do Christians understand that when they do water baptism? And Romans chapter 6 is read um, that you're basically, in a symbolic way, dying to the old life. That's what happens when you go under the water and you're crucified with Christ, and then you come back, and that's symbolic when you come up out of the water of a resurrection uh, life. Do we know what that means? Or are we just checking a box? And so that's why we're spending time on this. And I really encourage you um, to you know, go, on the, go on our website, um, which is simpletruthministries.net. Look at the books that are available there can't talk about all of the things that are there uh, in a radio broadcast. We can kind of do the highlights, but we have to go back to the original scripture and say, are we learning man-made religious traditions, just as Jesus complained about the Pharisees imposing all of these man-made religious uh, rules on, on um, on the Hebrews? It's the same thing in our environment. Uh, we have a lot of church traditions. We have a lot of church regulations, a lot of church this and that as far as um, uh, habits. And God saying, is this a continuation of the Tower of Babel where you have a religious spirit and we're just going through the motions? Or are you really going down the road of these covenants, because these covenants, as you learn the relevance and the significance of covenants, you realize, oh my goodness, these covenants are actually the journeys towards God, towards getting to know God deeply, profoundly, intimately. That's the relevance of covenants. A lot of times we don't even study the covenants and in the Jewish Testament, in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, we just say, well, you know, we're done with all that. You know, what's, what's the significance of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, um, the short answer is everything, because these covenants were made between Hebrew individuals and Father God. He initiated these covenants, and it was ultimately for whom? As you read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, it's, it's for the benefits of the members of the nations. Well, where do you say that? The Hebrews were to be the light unto the nations, to be an example of what a relationship with Father God looks like, feels like as an experience. That's the point of the covenants. It was to serve as an example as a prototype, that's why covenants are important. 
And to just say, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm amazed how many times uh, I see people who do evangelism and they give Bibles to to potential converts. And they say, this is the greatest book. It changed my life, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, here, here's a holy Bible. It's awesome. Thank you so much. And they'll say, don't read the first two thirds. Just look at the last third, which is the New Testament. And it's like, if you're looking for a piece of property, a, a, a home, a dwelling, a residence, and you go to a real estate agent and they come and they show you pictures of all the, um, the potential homes they have in their listings. And each time they show you a home, they just show you the roof of the house. What would be your reaction if you're seeking a home? Would it be, um, excuse me, I need a dwelling place which has a foundation and by the way, the foundation of what God is building is uh, the chief cornerstone is uh, Jesus, the Messiah. It says that in the Old Testament, it says it in the New. It's all over the place. And then you need the foundation of what? Of the apostles and the prophets. And you remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. And he's basically saying, this is one story. It's all connected. If you don't understand the foundation of the house that God is trying to build, well, then you end up with a story of a roof. How do you dwell inside of a roof? I'm going to take you to a a Bible verse, which is kind of a lead-in where we're going to be talking today. But check out Isaiah uh, 66. This is kind of a picture point of what uh, we're talking about. Here we are, Isaiah 66. I'm going to read out of the New King James. Check this out. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. Notice he didn't say heaven is my home. This is is Father God speaking, because it says, thus says the Lord, Adonai. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. And then he asks a question in the next line. But that just to, the first two lines there are to basically give us an idea, a picture of this majestic God, of, this, of the magnitude and size of this majestic God. But there's a question in the next line. It says, where is the house you will build for me? And we're thinking, wait a minute, you want us to build you a house? The me there is capitalized. It's a capital M. So it's God asking the question to us. And look at the next line. And where is the place of my, again, M is capitalized, of my rest? God's apparently not at rest because if he were, he wouldn't be asking these questions. And then check out, he's going to answer in Isaiah 66, verse 2. He's going to answer the questions that he just asked in Isaiah 66, 1. Check these out. For all those things my hand has made. Think, talking about heaven, talking about earth. And all those things exist, says, that he says, says the Lord. He's going to answer, where's the house you will build for me and where's the place of my rest? Check this out. But on this one will I look. You're going, hmm, on this one will I look. And then the next line clarifies that. On him, small h, who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Well, when you read that, you walk away and you're going, I think he's asking the question, the question to us. But not only is he asking the question to us, he's saying, 
you're the answer because I want to build my house, my place of rest, where I want to indwell, where I want to have my residence, where I want to have my domicile, where I want to have my home. It's on the individual person. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He's not at rest until he has a house in which to dwell. Now, that's pretty mind-blowing because most of us think, well, heaven is God's home, but he didn't say that. He says, it's my throne and earth is my footstool, but he's looking for something much more deep, much more personal, much more intimate, much, much, more, much more profound. He's saying, I want to indwell in a human being with these characteristics, with these parts of their personality, someone who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Do we realize the implications of this verse? And it's a hint of why the requirements of journeys and why these covenants basically roads as journeys leading not to a place, but to a relationship with our Creator Father. All right, we'll see you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We're going to pick it up where we left off. What we're talking about is this book called Homecoming, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, the questions that we're asking is, um, why is there a requirement of journeys after Passover? Why are the Hebrews brought out to experience God in a... um, excuse me, a desolate place called the Sinai Desert, where God is going to reveal himself in many ways as to his nature, as to his personality, as to his character, and to, as to his love for his children to say, um, I'm here, we need to get reacquainted, we need to get to know each other in a way that we, you haven't known me since your departure to Egypt, and this is going to take a walking out it's going to take some investment on your part to get to reestablish and restore and have a restitution of our earlier relationship that we had in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So um, there's a chapter that follows what are the requirements to, of, of uh, journeys. And um, it talks about or asks the question, why are, why are the covenants um, important to understand? And we talked about that the last radio show. I'm not going to go into that, um, but basically uh, covenants, we, we concluded that it, our contracts, whether they be unilateral contracts or bilateral contracts, um, you don't really get to know a person um, deeply, multidimensionally, until you have a contract with them. And we gave examples of you being a, a landlord or a tenant, depending on which side of the table you're on. It's in the performance of the terms of the contract where you get to know each other. It's in the performance of the stipulations of the covenant or the contract that people get to know each other. That's why 
God makes covenants. And whether it's the old covenant with Abraham, which was a personal covenant, with Isaac, which was a personal covenant, with Jacob, which was a personal covenant, or whether it was with Moses, which we talked about last week, unfortunately, the Mosaic covenant became a covenant with a group of people, not individuals, because the Jews um, signed assigned the representation element or the agency part to go, you climb the mountain and you take on God. You find out what God wants because it, they were intimidated. They were um, basically based on fear. They backed off on having a personal relationship with God. And we talked about how what a tragic uh, loss of opportunity that was. But um, I say on page uh, 123, um, well, actually 122, covenants and contracts reveal the nature and the characteristics of the people who actually participate in those agreements, those binding agreements. And as such, God's nature of holiness was revealed to his children through the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant in and of itself was good. Uh, Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3, 19 through 29. Um, But it was was really kind of a rung in um, a ladder. It was not the be-all and end-all. There was going to be an improvement, a better covenant, a new covenant, the Jews were unable to keep the uh, the earlier covenant of the law because it was written on stone and it was not yet written on their on their inside on their hearts, and uh, their Messiah and their new covenant had not yet been revealed to them, and um, they didn't have the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit uh, yet as well, and um, we saw what happened when the new covenant starts to manifest in the life and times of Messiah Jesus. But also, after um, Jesus uh, resurrected and ascended back to the Father, he said, I'm going to send you the, what they call, the Jews call the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the Holy Spirit. And I will send you the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit would be released onto his followers and those people around the followers of Yeshua, the followers of Jesus. And... Everything changed in Acts chapter 2 moving forward. Um, So what I point out is on page 123, all of God's covenants, all of them act as an ascending staircase. So picture that, an ascending staircase wherein each step depends on the lower one. You could say the same thing as a a ladder where with several rungs in the ladder, eventually ending at a specific destination. Each rung, each step on the staircase or each rung on the ladder depends on, a, on the previously established step to form the way, to show the way, to reveal the direction, and to complete a pathway to achieve God's ultimate objective. And what is that? What's his ultimate objective? What's the, what's the point? What's the goal? What's the target? That God's ultimate objective is relational reconnection. I'll say it again, relational reconnection between himself and his human children. A newly installed higher step on on the stepladder or on the staircase, a newly installed higher step doesn't cancel out or nullify the ones that came before it. All of those steps, all of those rungs are all interdependent and and connected. And I Turn the attention of the viewer to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul puts that all together. 
all of the steps, all of the rungs, if you will, on the, on the ladder, all of the steps in the ascending staircase reveal a roadmap of a divine unfolding blueprint plan to finally, finally end the separation, the relational division, the separation between God and his human children, which resulted from the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And I add here on page 123, and so it is with God's continuous establishment of the Hebrew covenants. What were the point of, of the Hebrew covenants? The same thing, to show a prototype or an example of how to have a relationship with God. Now, did they do it uh, correctly? Did they do it accurately? Unfortunately, they didn't. And that's what First um, Corinthians uh, chapter 10 is all about. I think it's the first 13 verses lays out the whole narrative of what they didn't do correctly in the relationship restoration part of it. But we Gentile children of Father God are, are included as co-participants in the rollout of these covenants. So let me, let me read this from Galatians chapter 3, how Paul pulls this all together between the, um, the connection between the Jewish covenants, the Hebrew covenants, and what's going to happen in the new covenant in the New Testament. Be assured them, I'm reading from the CJB here, Complete Jewish Bible on this. Be assured then that it is those who live by trusting and being faithful. Does that sound like relationship to you? Who are really the children of Abraham. Also the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would consider the Gentiles righteous when they live by trusting and being faithful. Uh, told the good news to Abraham in advance, saying, quote, in connection with you, all the nations will be blessed. You see why the Gentiles need to pay attention? Gentiles means people of the nations. That's all it means. But listen to this quote, in connection with you, all the nations will be blessed. That's the Gentile occupants of all of the nations of the earth. So then those who rely on trusting and being faithful are blessed along with Abraham, who also trusted and was faithful. That's Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9 in the complete Jewish Bible. Now, I point out that groups are made up of individuals, as demonstrated in Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter uh, 15. Not, but um, God is not only concerned about collective well-beings of groups, but as Jesus demonstrated, he will leave the 99 sheep to look for the one who's gone astray. God inter- is interested in individual covenants and individual arrangements and individual contracts. Each of us, as called out individuals, will be given an opportunity to make decisions that will determine if and how a personal covenant relationship will develop between ourselves and the Godhead. So I point this out in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. We use this a lot in uh, evangelism. But I'm going to read it from the Complete Jewish Bible by David Stearns. Yeshua is at the door. Jesus is at the door. And he's saying, here, I am standing at the door, knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. So, who do you have meals with? Oftentimes you have meals with close friends. Oftentimes you have meals with relatives. After <laughs> You have people in the family have meals together. I will let him who wins the victory, and I think in the New King James it says, who overcomes, sit with me on my throne. How's that for a heritage coming down the covenant road? Just as myself also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. And I point out that I believe that this Revelation 3.20 through 21 is an example in this, on these two verses of how the new covenant may be established with us on an individual basis. What we see here in these verses is an invitation to enter into a personal covenantal relationship with Messiah Jesus before we come to know our Heavenly Father. That, that's consistent with uh, John chapter 14, uh, 6. I am the way, says Jesus. I am the life, says Jesus. I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And I point out in uh, page 124, Jesus' knocking on our individual doors appears to be an offer to enter into a unilateral contract or a covenant. That is to say, promises are being made by Jesus in exchange for acts originating with us. And we talked about what a unilateral contract is. It's a promise in exchange for an act. A bilateral contract is a a promise in exchange for a return promise. Just like the unilateral contract that was formed between Abraham and Father God, Yeshua, Jesus, is initiating a personal relation, I'm sorry, a personal relational covenant invitation by knocking on the door of our heart. What it is is an offer being made contingent upon whether we respond or not to the knocking on the door of our heart. It's very descriptive when we go back and read Revelation three twenty through 21. Behold, I'm standing at the door, knocking. I'm knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, what will happen? I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So, for example... Here's the question. Will we hear Yeshua, Jesus, knocking on our heart? Will we, as individuals, open the door of our heart to him? Will we invite him in? Not just keep him um, waiting outside, you know, on the entryway of the the um, doorposts. Will we invite him in to dine with us? And now, look what Jesus, Yeshua, is promising us conditionally upon our response to his overtures. In other words, we do hear him knocking, and we open the door, and we invite him in, and we dine together. What is happening? It's a personal relationship with him, the second member of the Godhead. Uh, And he's promising also this. Uh, Let me read this, go back on Revelation 3.21. I will let him who wins the victory. Now, in the New King James, it says, uh, he who overcomes. 
and, and it says, I will grant him in the New King James. But here in the complete Jewish Bible, it says, I will let him who wins the victory sit with me on my throne. Look at what is happening with the forming of an intimate personal relationship with the Son of God, who was sent here to re- restore the, our relationship with our Father. But it has to, that relationship has to start, it has to begin with an individual relationship with the Son first. That's what John 14, 6 lays out. That's the roadway. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Okay? He didn't say no one gets to heaven. That's not the goal. The goal is restoring our relationship with Father God because that, by definition, is eternal life that we see in Revelation. I'm sorry, in uh, John 17, 3. So, the second member of the Godhead, along with a throne-like position of ruling and reigning with him, is the promise if we win the victory as an overcomer. Okay, what do you mean by an overcomer? We'll take a look at... Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. That defines an overcomer. As we respond to the overtures of our older brother, Jesus, the Messiah, by hearing his knock, by opening the door, and by inviting him into our inner self, which is our minds, and into our hearts, we are doing three things contractually at the same time. Now, what do I mean by that contractually? It's an agreement. It's a bond. It is a covenant. It is a compact. It's a contract. First, by means of our responsive acts of hearing, opening, and inviting, we are accepting the offer of Jesus to begin a personal relationship with him based on covenantal standards, just as the Father, God's divine Son, and as our divine big brother. And it's the same when Father God reached out to Abraham and wanted to have a personal covenant or relationship with Abraham. Second, we will have performed our part of the unilateral contract being offered by by Jesus by having heard his knock, by having heard our heart's door, or I'm sorry, by having opened our heart's door and having invited him in to enter into us, we performed already what Jesus was asking from us. Now, legally, Jesus is now obligated himself to comply with his end of the agreement, which is what? His entering into us and his Dining with us. It's a unilateral contract. Third, we are making ourselves contractually eligible now to participate in an additional unilateral contract, which is our personal investment in the contest of overcoming or winning the victory as it says in the complete Jewish Bible, overcoming, which it says in the New King James. Or in other words, um, basically being an overcomer, in order, check out the promise, future promise, in order to be awarded 
the reward of ruling with Christ on his throne. That's what it says. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, just as I myself also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The complete Jewish Bible has a little different take on it. It says, I will let him who wins the victory, which also means overcoming, sit with me on my throne, just as I myself also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Ruling and reigning is part of our, our roles in this kingdom. And um, God never changed his mind. Check out Revelation chapter 5 and look for us, our role of ruling and reigning with Christ as kings and priests. It's very clear. All right, let's go down to... Here we are. The additional unilateral contract offer made by Jesus is a gift of an opportunity a gift of a chance. And whether that opportunity ever comes to fruition depends on our trust-based obedience of fulfilling or overcoming whatever is asked of us by the Godhead in every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship. So you can see that this is a journey. You can see this is a journey of experience. Contracts have terms to them. Contracts have stipulations to them that have to be performed by both parties, not just God saying, okay, this is it. Even when God uh, offers us uh, the initial salvation experience, we have to respond to that. I mean, there, there is a response that's required by us and from us. And then what else does Messiah Jesus offer us if we allow him to contractually, covenantally, personally, intimately enter into us as described in Revelations 3, 20 through 21? Check this out. John fourteen twenty three. this is the New King James. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Does this verse answer the question that was posed by Father God in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2? You remember that earlier in this show? Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. And then he asked the question, Where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place of my rest? And then he says on verse 2, second half of verse 2, but on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He's talking about a human being. What is, that was in the Old Testament. Is this the New Testament fulfillment? Answering that question posed by Father God in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. He's looking for a house in which to dwell. He's looking for a domicile in which to reside. He's looking for a place, a house where he will have his rest. Let's read this verse again. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now notice, it's not stopping with the relationship with Jesus. 
we have an additional component added here. And my father will love him. And notice the next pronoun. It doesn't say, and I will come into him. He says, we, by the way, it's capitalized W, meaning both the father and the son. We will come to him and look, make our home with him. You see how that answers Father God's question in Isaiah 66, 1? Father God's looking for a house in which to dwell. And Yeshua comes, Jesus comes, and he says, you come to me first. I'm going to indwell you if you invite us in, and it's not going to stop there. We're going to become us, or we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, what's a home? It's a place where you live. And hopefully it's a home where there's rest. I'll tell you what, if you want a home where there's rest, Jesus told his his apostles, when you go into a building, when you go into an edifice, when you go into um, a home, you, you declare shalom on that place. You declare your peace on that place. Because what's a home without rest, the rest of God? What's a home without the peace of God inside that home relationally between the parents and the children, between the siblings uh, of, uh, of, of the children? You can tell when God, the presence of God, the spirit of God is resting in a home, on the home, around the home. You can tell that. We're being promised not just a relationship with our Messiah, Jesus, but added to the first promise, and we see in Revelations 3, with Jesus knocking on the door, look at this in John 14, 23, added to the first promise, now we are also being assured of a reconnected relationship, not just with Jesus, but with our divine Father as well. Jesus is doing his job as acting as the bridge to the Father. And that's what John 14, 6 is about. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except by me. So we are going back to the future, so to speak. Back to our divine Father. What does that mean? Well, we had a relationship with our divine Father back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 before the fall. This Bible story is a circular, reconnecting, covenantal story. It's a Hebrew story with a promise for all of the rest of us as goyim, as people of the nations, to also become divine family members, family members with our older brother, Jesus, and with Adonai as our father, our divine father, Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Check out those three verses. We got to wrap it up here. We'll pick it up where we left off. Hopefully this week we'll have a lot of Simple Truth moments for you. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth moments, email me at earlsimpletruth.net at gmail.com that's earl simple truth at gmail.com so until next time may god richly reveal his simple truth moments to you
You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise.